Well, good afternoon, church. Um, it's a privilege to be here and a privilege to um, teach the Word of God. And uh, so I thank you for that opportunity. So church family, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today. So if you grab your Bibles and turn there, uh, we'll get there in just a sec. Uh, I want to do, say a special welcome to those who are new, those who are visiting. Um, here at Refuge Fellowship, we teach and preach the Word of God verse by verse by verse. And in this long season right now that we are in, we're in the Gospels. We're in the life of Christ. And because uh, there are four accounts of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what uh, we have done is we have overlaid those books onto one another so that instead of just going through one book, we're going through all of them and we are doing it chronologically. So we're chronologically going through the life of Christ. And today's passage finds us in Luke chapter 9. Next week, we might be in John's gospel or Matthew's or Mark's gospel, but we are slowly and methodically going through the life of Christ. And why do we do that? So that we can know the Savior. So that we can truly know and understand who Christ is and what he wants out of our lives. Again, if you're new, if you're visiting, we hope that you are blessed this afternoon with our church family as we worship and song together and as we study the word together. Uh, as way of review, the last couple of weeks we have been looking at Christ and how he has been teaching and how he's been doing miracles. He has given sight to the blind. He has walked on water. He has fed thousands of people uh, two different times. He has um, raised the dead to life. So naturally, Jesus, as he's continuing to travel around, he is getting more and more famous. And he's drawing large crowds of people to him to hear what he has to say. But time and again, we have seen that Jesus communicates that he is not interested in drawing large crowds just for the sake of drawing large crowds. As Pastor Christian has said, Christ is more interested in the quality of his followers than the quantity of his followers. He is more interested in the heart of those who follow him. He wants those who are fully committed to him. And Jesus knows clearly that his mission is to go to the cross. His mission is to die for the sins of humanity and then to be raised again. And as the time approaches for his death and burial and resurrection, he communicates this to his disciples over and over again. He gives them a heads up that this is coming. And he's very plain, he's very clear that what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, but his disciples don't understand. They don't get it. And we can ask how did you not understand this? But church, the disciples could not fathom. They could not comprehend a savior that would be killed. A king that would be crucified. It just never factored in to how they understood Jesus to be. Uh, what kind of leader he would be. And then uh, more specifically, in the last couple of weeks, we studied, we looked at two, what I would say are pivotal moments in the life of Christ that reveals to his disciples and then to us who he really is. In Matthew 16, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples say, 
Well, some say maybe you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns the question on to them personally, and he asks the most important question in the entire world. He asks the most important question that any of us will ever hear, and he asks the question that each one of us must answer before we die, which is, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is? Because, friends, eternity hangs in the balance. And Peter answered right. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the long-promised one, the awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And And Jesus says, based on this declaration, I will build my church. So clearly, Christ is revealing himself as that long-awaited Messiah. In the next chapter, Matthew 17, it's just a few days later. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on top of the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them. He is changed before them. His face shines. His clothes become white. In this moment, these three disciples, and only them, get a picture, a glimpse of heaven being opened and the glory of God resting upon Jesus Christ. Clearly, he is portrayed in that moment as one who is divine, one who is God in the flesh. And on that mountain, these uh, Jesus is talking to Elijah, who is the Old Testament prophet and Moses, who was the Old Testament lawgiver, and Jesus is dialoguing with them. And he's talking to these Old Testament people who had lived hundreds of years before about his upcoming death on the cross. And so again, the disciples see beyond a shadow of a doubt who Christ is as the Son of God, the one who was and is and is to come. And so those two pivotal moments about who Christ is really serves as a backdrop for today's message. Because today's message is all about, okay, in light of who Christ is, what is man's response? What is our response to Christ? In light of him being the Christ, the Son of the living God. In light of him being divine, the God that has always existed and who created the earth. What is our response? And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be in verse 51 to to the end of the chapter, to verse 62. Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus says, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus replied, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another, a third said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father God, you have given us your word and it is a treasure. It is, it is the revelation of who you are. It is your speaking to us. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, a mind to conceive, and a heart to understand and obey and to respond to the word of God. Lord, we sit here today and trust that your word is truth, that your word is without error, that your word is inspired. It is the very words of God written down by men. In Though it is 2,000 years old, this passage is applicable for our lives today. So, Holy Spirit, teach us as you will. May the meditation of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. Verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up. So this is a clear reference to the ascension of Christ. So after he was dead and buried and rose again... He ended up ascending, going up into heaven. So this is a reference to that, which at first is strange, is it not? Because so much needs to happen before Jesus ascends and goes back to heaven. Before he goes back to heaven, Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He will be betrayed by Judas. He will be arrested, tried, and found guilty. He will be whipped and mocked and forced to carry his cross to Calvary. He will be nailed to that cross and he will hang there for hours before he takes his final breath. And then he will be buried into a tomb. And he will remain there for three days until he comes to life again. But even that is not the end of the story. Because for 40 days after he is raised, he speaks to his disciples to teach them instruct them, encourage them, and set them on the path to take leadership of his church. And then, and only then, does he ascend to the Father and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so when Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be ascended, it's maybe a little strange because there's so much still to be done. So let's ask ourselves, why does Luke choose this? And I would say, church, Jesus Christ knew the entirety of his mission. He knew that his mission on earth, his task on earth does not end in death. Amen? He knows that his task on earth does not even end with his resurrection. He knows that his task on earth does not end until he has fully uh, instructed his disciples And only then will he ascend into heaven. Christ would perfectly fulfill his mission and fulfill it to the end. And I thought, you know what? Maybe it's like a marathon runner. I know some of you are runners. I am not. 
So maybe Pastor Christian can answer this. But like for the marathon runner, that the focus is the very end, the crossing of the finish line. And that runner might say, as I drew near that finish line. He's not going to say, as I drew near mile marker one and two, or as I drew near the pit stop or the water break. Because his eyes are on, or her eyes are on, that final step past the finish line. Because that is the goal. Just as Christ knows, he will be killed, he will be buried, he will raise again, but then his task does not, uh, is not completed until the end. It says, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Again, Jesus knows what lies ahead. He knows that in Jerusalem he will be killed. But Jesus remains determined. He was resolute. That idea of setting his face toward what lies ahead. He was resolute. He was determined. He was faithful. And he was obedient. The city that should have inaugurated him as king ends up being the city that, that yells, crucify him. Jesus was faithful to the task that he was given. And that task would include terrible suffering, physical pain, rejection by his people, abandonment by his friends, being betrayed by one close to him. And yet he remained obedient. And as I was putting this message together, the the passage from Philippians 2 came to my mind that he was obedient even to the point of, He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing the task that the Father had given him, he remained obedient. And so church, as we stare down the the tasks that God has given us, the trials of life that we're going to face, we need to ask ourselves, are we resolute in our commitment to Christ? Are we going to be faithful and obedient in our commitment to Christ? Because that is what Christ wants. He wants those who follow him to be determined, to be faithful, to be resolute. Our Lord was obedient to his Father, and we need to be obedient to the Lord. Verses 52 to 56. Christ sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people there did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when two of his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? But he turned, he rebuked them, and they went to another village. Why a Samaritan village? Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He was in the north. He wanted to go to the south, and he had two options. He could take the long way around, which was safer, or he could go straight through Samaria. But Jesus is Jewish. The Samaritans are not, and they hate each other. So there's ethnic hatred towards one another, but more than that, there is religious hatreds towards one another. They have different temples of worship, different beliefs, And so Jesus chose to go straight through Samaria when he did not have to. And so when Jesus asks two of these um, messengers to go ahead and ask for this town to receive him, to host him, to show hospitality, they said no. 
probably these two messengers assumed the villagers would already um, say no. So we are not told... We are not told why. So there's, there are two reasons uh, that could possibly be on why this village chose not to welcome Jesus, not receive him. Number one, maybe they just rejected Jesus because they chose not to believe in him. And if that's the case, then we can apply this to those that we share with who just say, you know what, I don't, I choose not to follow Christ. Okay, but maybe they choose to not receive Jesus simply because this is at least 13, probably more, of a group that they ethnically do not like and religiously are at odds with. And they just choose that, you know what, we don't want to show hospitality to this group of people because we can choose not to. It's interesting, the Bible does not tell us why they chose to not welcome Christ and the disciples. And so I don't want to focus there. Because the Bible does speak to what happens after, which is the, the disciples' response. So let's focus there. They want to call down fire from heaven to kill the villagers. Okay, well, let's look at this from the disciples' point of view. These, this, these people had dishonored their Lord. Okay? They had chosen not to welcome, not to receive Christ. The disciples, uh, they believed that Jesus was a prophet, much like the prophet Elijah. Uh, they believed that he was a king who would set them free. Certainly, the, the, re- the rejection or the unwelcome of Christ was a mistake. But James and John are so zealous for Christ. They are so passionate for Christ and for his honor that they want these people to be killed, destroyed, simply because... They chose not to welcome the Messiah. And so what what does Christ do? He rebukes the disciples, not the Samaritans. Isn't that interesting? He rebukes the disciples, not the Samaritans. These are two men who have walked with him for the last few years, who have sat under his leadership, some of his most trusted students or trusted disciples, and he rebukes them. These men who, in just a short amount of time, are going to take leadership of his church. But he does not rebuke the Samaritans who choose not to receive him. Now, we would naturally think maybe Jesus would have rebuked or condemned the Samaritans because they failed to embrace or receive um, the person of Christ. But he rebukes the disciples. Now, this idea of calling fire down out of heaven is actually not unprecedented. Because in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah, which remember, they had just seen Elijah on the mountain. Okay, So the prophet Elijah had called fire down from heaven on two different occasions. One was to show God's power and glory. The other one was to destroy those who disagreed with uh, with God. So their idea was not totally out of question, but Jesus rebukes them. And so we need to ask why. And friends, Christ has been clear throughout his life that his ministry was not condemnation and judgment of people. His ministry was condemnation and judgment of sin. Amen? 
Okay, so our mission, our ministry as his followers needs to be condemnation of sin and not condemnation of people, not condemnation of the lost. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to heal. He came to love. He came to set free. He came to save. And friends, people are going to reject Christ. And they may reject us because of our faith in Christ. But regardless, our task is to show them love and mercy and grace. And we need to remember that people, even unbelievers, they are not our enemies. I'm still relatively new to Thailand and I'm still learning about um, the church in Thailand and how everything works. But I am very familiar with the church in America. And I have seen in America many Christians who are angry toward unbelievers because of their lack of faith. Or they're angry with unbelievers because they choose not to align themselves with the word of God and live according to the word. Christians, many Christians are angry with unbelievers because they live sinful, immoral lives. And there are probably Christians in America who act and talk like unbelievers are the enemy and may want to call down fire from heaven in order to destroy them. But friends, that is not the way of Christ. It was not the ministry of Christ while he walked the earth, and it cannot be ours. Now, church, listen. Make no mistake, one day, yes, every man and woman will sit in judgment. One day, Christ will judge each person according to their relationship to him and, their, and what they have done in this body. But church, today is not that day, and we are not that judge. One more thought. As I had prepared this sermon, it hit me that these two disciples... The ones being who had been with Christ the longest. Look at what they said. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you want us to do this? These are two of the three that had just seen Christ transfigured on the mountain. They were leaders among the disciples. In church, they were wrong. They were wrong about the nature of what Christ wanted. They were wrong about the ministry that Christ had towards people. They were wrong about his love and his grace towards these Samaritans. They were wrong, I believe, about what they assumed that they had the power and authority to do in calling down fire from heaven. And it just reminded me that in all of our zeal for Christ, there are things in which we can be wrong. We can have wrong assumptions, and that is why we must continually be in the Word and relying on the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans had rejected Jesus or not welcomed him. The disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven, and Jesus rebuked the disciples, and he was patient with the unbelievers. Because, friends, nobody is outside of the hope and reach of Christ. Second Peter 3 9 says, God is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. First Timothy 2 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we, his disciples, should exercise the same patience towards those in our lives who have not yet received Christ. 
lost people, unbelievers are not our enemies. They are our mission field. So what happens there at the end? Jesus goes on to another village, one that welcomes him. So after being rejected or after being not received by the Samaritans, one might think that Jesus would be overjoyed at anyone who might be willing to follow him or anyone who expressed any interest and been like, yeah, I'll follow you. But instead, we get a very different response from Jesus. Because right after this, they get on the road and three different men approach Jesus. And it's not necessarily that Jesus is making it difficult to follow him. It's simply that he wants to communicate to everyone that following him does come with a cost. It will cost us to follow Christ. And he wants those only who are willing to count the cost, those who are committed to him. So let me read the last section one more time. As they were going along the road, verse 57, someone says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then to another, he says, follow me. And the man says, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then a third says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit. For the kingdom of God. Friends, we need to remember and embrace the fact that following Christ comes with a cost. This passage gives us a look at three different people and their response to Jesus. Some people call these three the um, would-be disciples. But I don't think that's fair. Because Jesus, that assumes they chose not to follow. But scripture doesn't tell us whether they decided to follow whether they counted the cost, and whether they continued with Christ or not. So I'm going to call them these unnamed disciples. We have three of them. A good question to ask for any Bible passages uh, passage is, why is this recorded in Scripture? And what can we learn from it? Because there are an infinite number of things that God has done in this world and in the life of Christ, but not very much is recorded in Scripture. So what is recorded in Scripture is therefore a reason. God has designed it therefore a reason. Why is that and what can we learn from that? The primary message in this last section is we need to know that there is a cost to following Jesus. This first unnamed disciple So, number one, Jesus and his entourage, they continue their journey. I will follow you. And Jesus says, I have nowhere to lay my head. It is easy to follow Christ when life is good. It's easy to follow Christ when we have enough money and our bodies are healthy and things are going well. As followers of Christ, we're not promised ease. We are not promised a comfortable life. We're not promised good health or wealth or a good job or any of these other, other earthly blessings that God does sometimes give. We are not promised those things. We are not promised a spouse, children, or our dream job. We are not promised a home or a vehicle or anything else. These things are not guaranteed simply because we are followers of Christ. We have a lot of earthly desires, but what we are told is this. 
Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So church, God meeting our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ is different than God being some kind of genie in the bottle that is obligated to answer whatever commands and requests that I have. And let's look at what's, what's happening here. Jesus is just being honest. He did not have a place to lay his head. He did not have a home. The Lord Jesus did not live a life of luxury and ease and one of comfort. Neither did his disciples who were previously hardworking fishermen. They did not live lives of ease and comfort. Nowhere in scripture are we told to expect those things. Rather, we are told to expect persecutions, hardships, and hatred. John 59 says, Jesus is speaking. He says, I chose you, therefore the world hates you. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As we read through scripture, let's always remember, Christ knows more about what's happening in the hearts and the minds of these people than we do. Right? So often we have seen through our study of scripture that Christ knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what the rich young ruler has in his heart. Right? So what is this man have in his heart. This man was eager to follow Jesus, but based on Christ's response to this man, he must have expected a life of ease and luxury and comfort because that was Jesus' response. And maybe the man anticipated some kind of wealth or blessing because he believed Jesus was going to set up a kingdom on the earth. So this man needed to know the cost of following Jesus includes sacrifice of earthly comforts. The cost of following Jesus includes the sacrifice of earthly comforts. Okay, unnamed disciple number two. This one does not tell Jesus he wants to follow him. Rather, Jesus says to him, follow me. That's amazing. Jesus is the creator of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this wonderful invitation to come, follow me. And the man makes an excuse. Let me first go bury my father. And Jesus replies, leave the dead to bury their dead. For you, go proclaim the kingdom. Now to our 21st century ears, Jesus' response, leave the dead to bury their dead, that seems harsh, right? It seems unfair. It seems unkind. It seems unloving. It seems that maybe Jesus doesn't care about family or at least doesn't care about this man's family responsibilities and duties. So what is, what is Jesus communicating to this man and therefore communicating to us? Jesus is clearly showing this man that his priorities have been misplaced. He was with Jesus But Jesus was not the priority of his life. Now, let me do a quick note. The Bible does not tell us that this man or this man's father has died. It does not tell us if this man's father was on the brink of death and imminent death. It does not tell us whether this man was actually asking for just this indefinite delay until one day when his father died. 
but likely the man is with Jesus right now. So likely his father was not, had not died because they perform those funeral rites very quickly. Likely the man's father was not facing imminent death, meaning that he, wouldn't, he was going to die any moment because if he was, he would not be on the road with Jesus. Likely this man is asking for uh, permission to, I will follow you, but it's going to take some time. I'm going to wait for my dad to die. And maybe it's because this man is expecting some type of inheritance from his father. Maybe it's because this man knows that his father disapproves of his of his, him following Christ. But whatever the cause, whatever the, the situation, Jesus is saying your priorities are not right. And so church, we need to make sure our priorities are are right. We need to make sure in the list of our priorities that Christ and his kingdom is number one. Because if we have something else as number one, that thing is an idol for us. I'll get back to that in just a sec. Jesus calls us to this man and says, personally, to this one man, follow me. And the man makes an excuse. But that should ring bells in our heads because we have seen this before where Jesus approaches somebody and says, follow me, follow me. So he does that with the disciples. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And this is calling the very first of the disciples, two of whom are James and John, who wanted to call fire down from heaven, okay? So Matthew chapter 4, starting in 18. While walking beside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left their boat and they left their father, and they followed him. Turn a page or two in your Bible to, to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. This is another one of the disciples. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose up and followed him. What do we see in these disciples that we fail to see in this unnamed disciple in Luke. Immediate obedience. They left work. They left family. They left livelihood. They left security to follow Christ immediately. This man made excuses, asked for permission to wait. His priorities were not in correct order. There are a lot of things that are important in our lives. Work is important. But if work is more important than Christ, then you have made work an idol. Family is important. But if you have made family more important than Christ, then family is an idol. I know many Asian cultures have a much stronger sense of family duty than Western cultures do. In total, we have lived in Asia for about five years. And I've seen... The duty of family or family responsibilities have a strong influence on people's lives. 
I've met people who are unwilling to become Christians because they feel obligated to their parents. Or I've met people who have decided to follow Christ, but they're unwilling to be baptized because they don't want the disapproval of their parents. If family is being used as an excuse not to wholeheartedly being fully committed to Christ, then family is being an idol. Your priorities might be misplaced. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom. The cost of following Jesus includes new priorities. And as a follower of Christ, our priority must be on him and on his kingdom. Our commitment to Christ should be without reservations and without delays. But we also see with this, the second guy, um, the cost of following Jesus sometimes has a new command, right? Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go and proclaim. This was not a suggestion. This was a command. A command to him and a command to any one of us who is a follower of Christ to go and to proclaim. One last thought. This idea about that leave the dead to bury their dead. What is Christ saying? Because he he follows it up with go and proclaim, right? So what is he saying? He's saying more important than burying the physically dead, go and proclaim life to those who are spiritually dead. Do you catch that? More important than burying those who are physically dead, go and proclaim life to those who are still spiritually dead. And that is a task for each one of us. Real quick, number three, this third unnamed disciple. He's like the first. He willingly offers to follow Jesus, but he wants to go home and say goodbye. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom. And that those who heard would have have remembered 1 Kings 19. Elijah and Elisha does the same thing. Elijah is the prophet. He calls the next one Elisha. Elisha says, I would like to go back and say goodbye to my family. And he is allowed to do that. He goes back home. He says goodbye. And then he kills the ox and, and, and burns it with the plow, makes a sacrifice. So why was this man told no? If Elisha, when Elijah called Elisha, if he was able to go back to his family and say goodbye, why was this man not? And church... We need to know as disciples, as followers of Christ, and this man needed to know that Jesus is more important than Elisha. The call of Jesus is greater than the call of Elisha. The mission of Jesus is greater than the mission of Elijah. And Christ demands surrender. As a disciple, as a follower of Christ, we need to be willing to surrender everything. We need to be willing to surrender our old life to him, our identities to him, our old friends and habits and relationships that are not honoring to him. Our reputations are his. Our finances need to be surrendered to him. Our futures, our dreams and goals. Everything in our life needs to be put upon the altar and surrendered to Christ. Because that is a cost in following Jesus. Because nothing and no one is more important than Christ. 
The cost of following Christ includes surrender. This afternoon, we have looked at four different groups. Number one, we looked at Christ. He set his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards suffering. He was resolute in accomplishing the task that God had given to him. He was faithful, and he requires us to be as well. Number two, we looked at the Samaritans who failed to receive Jesus. And when people in our lives fail to receive Jesus, we do not condemn, we do not judge, we patiently wait and pray for them to come to know Christ. Number three, we look at these two disciples, right? James and John, they wanted to be judged and call fire down from heaven. And they misunderstood God's patience and grace and love. Yes, one day all people will be judged, but not by us. Lost people are not our enemies. They are the mission field. And finally, we looked at three men, these unnamed disciples, who needed to be told about the cost of following Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Luke 18, 28, Jesus, uh, Peter says to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. We have left everything in order to follow you. And it was true. They had sacrificed everything to follow Christ. They had counted the cost, and they had determined that Christ was worth it. And being a follower of Jesus Christ, it may cost your earthly comforts and ease, but Christ is worth it. Following Christ may cost reordering or reorganizing your priorities, but Christ is worth it. Following Christ may cost you by surrendering things that you hold dear to your heart, but Christ is worth it. Friends, there is a cost to following Christ. But whatever it is that he asks you to pay in that cost, rest assured, Christ is worth it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Savior. We thank you that you have sent him to the cross. We thank you that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ has come down. He stood in our place. He died the death that we were supposed to die. He took the punishment that we were supposed to bear. He took our shame. He took our guilt. And we stand forgiven. And we stand free because of Christ. So Lord, I pray right now for those in here in this room or who are watching online who do not know Christ, who have not counted the cost, who are not followers of Christ, Lord, at this moment they still stand condemned under the wrath of God until they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that the Spirit of God will work on their hearts and work on their minds and reveal to them that they are not perfect. They make mistakes, and these mistakes are called sin, and this sin has separated from the God that created them and that loves them and that desires a relationship with them. But we can only have a desire with the God of creation through his Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that Christ would be honored and Christ would be glorified in each one of our lives, whether we have been believers for many, many years or whether we have are just coming to faith in the knowledge of Christ today. God be glorified. Christ be glorified. Spirit work and move in us as we follow in obedience. And Lord, as we read your word, as we continue to study, remind us again and again, yes, there is a cost in following Christ, but it is so worth it. 
Because in Christ we have peace that the world cannot give. And in Christ we have love that the world cannot give. And in Christ we have life and we have hope and joy that the world does not understand and cannot give. Lord, it's in your name, the mighty name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.